You know, the Bible is a book full of, well, love and romance, war, adventure, a little bit of mystery, a whole lot of hope. The Bible is a, a book filled with stories, uh, true stories, and many of these stories have several twists and turns, don't they? And tonight's story has so many twists and turns that at times this evening, you may feel as though you're on a roller coaster but you're upside down and you're going at the speed of light. That's kind of how fast and how twisty and curvy and turny we're going to be heading tonight. We're going to start out in a cemetery and then we'll soar through the sky, pierce through the clouds and enter a castle. And really where we end up is all up to you. Because tonight's story is one of those choose your own ending type of stories. The castles and the cemeteries are both hot pieces of real estate. They're both selling well. They're both very popular. And you could choose either one. Tonight's story is found in Mark chapter 5. Mark chapter 5, verses 1 through 20. So if you have your Bible with you, you may want to turn to that. Now, we're also going to put those scriptures on the screen because I'm using the Living Bible tonight, and you may have a different version. That's fine. You follow along in your version, or you can look up at the screen. I want you to know this same story is also told in Luke chapter 8, verses 26 to 40. Mostly we'll stick with the story in Mark, but uh, at some point we'll draw some pieces and some information from Luke's version and we'll blend it into the story that we're digging through in Mark. Are you ready? Mark chapter 5, verse 1. Let's dig in. Here we go. When they arrived at the other side of the lake, a demon-possessed man ran out from a graveyard just as Jesus was climbing from the boat. So Jesus and his disciples, that's who they are when they arrived. Jesus and his disciples are in a boat. They spent a, a lot of time in boats, didn't they? They've just arrived at the shore. Picture maybe kind of a beach area. So they've arrived at the beach, and just as Jesus is climbing from the boat, he's not out of the boat yet. And so in my mind, I picture he's probably pulled up his robe, and maybe he's, he's lifting up his leg to get over the side of the boat. And maybe just as he's hiking up that leg to get out of the boat, that's when this demon-possessed man comes running out of the graveyard, out of the cemetery, and he approaches Jesus. Jesus isn't even out of the boat yet. And this seemingly lunatic man runs out of a graveyard to approach Jesus. Do you know what that tells us? You serve an approachable God. Oh, he is always approachable. Do not let anyone ever make you think, oh, you can't approach God. You can't approach Jesus. Oh, no, you're too bad. You've sinned too much. You're too far gone. You've blown it too many times. Hey, anyone can approach Jesus. He loves you. He's crazy about you. Again, next to Father God, he loves you more than anything in the world. He's a people God, and he loves people. You can approach Jesus. And this demon-possessed man out of the graveyard comes running wildly and approaches Jesus. This vile, despicable, tormented, demon-possessed man approached Jesus. Now, 
This man is demon-possessed, and he can feel. He can feel something's not right. See, the demons are inside of him, and they're letting him know there's a stirring going on in the demonic force that inside, that's inside of him. His hair it stood on end. His flesh is tingling. He can sense there's something definitely wrong. Sudden chills encompass his flesh, and then he felt it, a disturbance within this supernatural force within him because you see the last person that a demon wants to see is Jesus the son of God and sure enough right there pulling up to shore in a boat was every demon's worst nightmare Jesus the son of God so of course there's that stirring within him of course he's sensing something's not right Jesus has approached let's continue to read the story in scripture verses 3 and 4 this man lived among the gravestones or in a cemetery and had such strength that whenever he was put into handcuffs and shackles, as he often was, he snapped the handcuffs from his wrist and smashed the shackles and walked away. No one was strong enough to control him. This isn't his strength, but because of the satanic power within him, whenever he was bound with ropes, he just snapped them like dental floss. So people had shackled him, but he still broke free. You see, in their minds, in society's minds, in our minds, he's a freak. We don't know what to do with him. We don't know how to handle him. Just tie him up. I don't shackle him, handcuff him. I don't just send him out of the city. Let's just get rid of him. He's a freak. He was an outcast, possessed by demons. Let's look at the next scripture. All day long and through the night, he would wander among the tombs. See, he actually lived in this cemetery and he would wander among the wild hills screaming this tells us he's miserable and cutting himself with sharp pieces of stones did you know that cutting is nothing new to God <laughs> it's nothing new to God when uh, somebody cuts maybe some of our teens here have a friend who's a cutter it's a pretty popular thing for teenagers now and even some young adults, but it's nothing new. And it's never the right way to handle our problems, but I want you to know tonight, God understands the pain of someone who cuts. Not only is it mentioned here, this guy's a cutter, but as you remember, it's also mentioned in the Old Testament. You remember Elijah and the prophets of Baal. They had the big showdown on Mount Carmel Arena. <laughs> and Elijah had his bull. The prophets of Baal had their bull. And Elijah's challenge was, let's both pray to our God. I'll pray to Jehovah God. You pray to your false god, Baal. And whoever burns the bull, whichever god burns the bull without any matches or fire starters, that's the god who's real. Well, of course, Elijah's bull was burned because our God set the bull in flames of fire, but the prophets of Baal's bull never got burned. Scripture says in, in 1 Kings chapters 18 and 19, Elijah began to taunt them. He got a little sarcastic. He said, hey, where's your God? Maybe he's on a vacation or maybe he's away on business. In the Living Bible, it says, maybe he's on the toilet. <laughs> and then the next line of Scripture says, and so they began cutting themselves 
with sharp pieces of stones and knives as was their custom until the blood gushed out. So cutting is nothing new to God. And here in the Bible, we see another cutter. He's miserable. He's living in a cemetery. Now, we're going to grab some information found from Luke's story and blend it in with our story here in Mark. From Luke's version, we find out that this man is homeless and he's naked. He's completely destitute. He has nothing. Not only does he not have a home, he doesn't have clothes, he doesn't have material possessions, he doesn't have a toothbrush. He's living in a cemetery, for crying out loud. What does that tell you about him? Well, it says there is no hope. <laughs> it says I, I don't have anything to look forward to. It also says I'm in a major identity crisis. If this is who I identify with, the dead, if this is where I belong, then I'm at the very lowest point I could go. I'm dead. This is my destiny. This is where I belong. Major identity crisis. He was experiencing extreme loneliness and massive aloneness. Two different things. Loneliness and aloneness. He's apart from friends. He has no family. He wants No one wants anything to do with him. He's been chained up by society. They don't know how to handle him. Their answer, get rid of him. We don't care. Tie him up. He's in a horrible condition. And the devil is slowly draining the life out of this man in the cemetery. Now, we don't know how he became like this. The Bible doesn't tell us. Could it be that... He had experienced a death from a family member or a friend. Maybe a, a mom died. Maybe a brother died. It could be that he had been bullied incessantly during his, his middle school years. It could be that uh, he was abused as a child. It could be that whatever hurt he has experienced, he never learned to give that to God. And when we don't give our hurt to God... Satan has an opportunity to grab a foothold in our life. Of course, he didn't have a relationship with God. And when we don't have God living inside, well, Satan has the opportunity to come inside and take control of our lives. But even we as Christians, if we don't learn to give our hurts, our past, our problems, uh, the pain, if we don't learn to turn that over to Jesus, then eventually that will turn into bitterness. And when we carry around grudges and bitterness, we're giving Satan a foothold into our lives. And so we don't know how he became like this, but here he is living in a graveyard. Let's look at the next, script, the next verse in Scripture, verse 6. When Jesus was still far out on the water, the man had seen him and had run to meet him and fell down before him. Again, this is repeating the fact that you can approach Jesus. There's never a time when you can't come to Jesus. Really, this verse just kind of repeats what's going on in the first verse that we read. It's just from a little slightly different perspective. The first verse, Jesus was already at shore. He was climbing out of the boat. This verse, while he's still far out on the water, the man sees him and he starts running and he falls down before him. So the same thing, just from a different perspective, but it reiterates the concept, the truth, that Jesus is an approachable God. Let's look at the next few verses. 7 and 8, then Jesus spoke to the demon within the man and said, come out, you evil spirit. 
It gave a terrible scream, shrieking, What are you going to do to me, Jesus, Son of God of the Most High? For God's sake, don't touch me! The demons are controlling the man's tongue and voice, and they're speaking directly to Jesus. In the next scripture, verse 9, What is your name, Jesus asked. And the demon replied, Legion, for there are many of us here within this man. Now, Jesus knows all. He knew what the man was called. So why did he ask him the question? What is your name? Jesus knows everything. Because Jesus is a people God. And he always invites dialogue. Jesus loves it when you talk to him. Even if you're talking to him in anger and fear and confusion, Jesus wants to hear from his children. And, and the demons are speaking through him, and Jesus invites the conversation. He invites the dialogue. Now, Legion is a weird name for someone, isn't it? That's just a really weird name. In Bible times, Legion equaled 6,000 soldiers. That's a lot of demons. Now, many Bible scholars believe that this meant, I mean, the question is, did he really have 6,000 demons, and that's why he was called Legion, or did it mean that he had so many demons that even Satan had lost count? And most Bible scholars will say, we think that he just had so many demons inside of him that it was just too many to count, and Satan didn't care, and he had lost count, and so they just slapped him. Satan is slapping him with a label. Notice, his name is a label. It's not Jeff, is it? It's not Brian or Eric. It, Legion. What kind of name is that? Satan loves to label people. We mentioned this last night, and I said we'd bring it up again tonight. Many of you, I, I, I'm afraid, have accepted a label instead of how God really sees you. And you see, God never labels you. He never sees you as a label. But Satan would love to label you and just keep you right inside that label. You're the divorced one. You're the one who had an abortion. You're the one who's not any good at math. You're the one who's always late. You're the one who never can hold down a job. You're still an alcoholic, aren't you? You haven't taken a drink in three years, but you're the alcoholic. Satan loves to slap you with a label, and I want you to know tonight, you are not a label to God. You are a child of the king. How do you know that, Susie? I know that God calls you by your name. You see, he calls you in the most intimate way he can, by your name. He calls you by your name. How do you know that? Because in Isaiah 43, Isaiah 44, and Isaiah 45, he continues to repeat that. You are my chosen one. I call you by your name. You are special. You're mine. That's how Jesus approaches you. Not with a label, but he calls you by your name. So I need to just ask you, have you accepted a label for yourself instead of who you really are? Because if you have, God wants to remove that label from you. And he wants to remind you that you're his child. You're his prince. You're his princess. You are children of the king. Now, in Romans chapter 9, verse 20, in the message, that's a, 
paraphrase of the Bible, not an exact translation. We mentioned that the other night. But in the message version, I love the way that it hints at this label thing. Listen to this, Romans 9, 20 from the message. I'll call nobodies and make them somebodies. Oh, don't you love that? Jesus is saying, I'll call nobodies and I'll make them somebodies. But let me read the rest of the scripture to you. I'll call nobodies and make them somebodies. God doesn't count us. He calls us by name. You are not a number to God. He doesn't count you. How many do we have here tonight? No. He doesn't see you as just one big old group here at Salem Field. No, he sees you as individuals, children of the king. Let me finish the verse. That's not all. I'll call nobodies and I'll make them somebodies. God doesn't count us. He calls us by name. Arithmetic is not his focus. Oh, I love that. If arithmetic were God's focus, I'm afraid I would not make it to heaven. <laughs> I'm sorry, but I am not good at math. In fact, when it comes to the whole number, math, arithmetic thing, I'm convinced it boils down to this. There are three types of people in the world. Three types of people in the world. And those are those who really get math and those who really don't. And I don't. I just have never gotten math. I'm just going to share a little inside, a few inside secrets here, me being vulnerable with you. <laughs> Bless my heart. I'm an adult, and I still cannot balance my checkbook. Isn't that pitiful? I know. I, and it's not that I overspend. I don't do that. I do uh, under deposit once in a while, but I do not <laughs> overspend. And so uh, pretty much uh, when, I ever, when I run out of money at the bank, I just go to the bank, close the account, find a new bank, and start all over. <laughs> just a lot easier that way. Now, I, when it started out, uh, first grade, second grade, third grade, I was okay with numbers. I could add some. I could subtract some. I learned how to multiply, and I learned how to divide. But then I got into fourth grade, and story problems came into my life. Oh. Do we really need story problems? And that's when the trouble began to start. Thank you. That's when the trouble began to start, and we began to realize that I had a problem with math. Now, I don't know what it is. I don't know if it's a learning disability. I don't know if it's just that I'm so bored with it. I don't care to learn it. I don't know. We never decided what it was, but I can't do math. Now, my dad is a great man. Sharp mind, my mom too, but my dad, he knew how to do math. And so every night, he would help me with all my math homework. No television for Susie. She has to do math homework. And every morning, no cartoons for Susie. We have to finish your math homework. And so because Dad was always helping me with the math homework, I, I always passed. I had great daily grades. But when it came time to the tests, I would sink because Dad wasn't there to help me. But they kept passing me on because I had such wonderful daily grades. Well, huh, I'm getting back at Dad now. <laughs> he's, four, he's, he's 92, <laughs> and he's uh, trying to learn email. <laughs> Last weekend, I got 500 emails from him. They all said the same thing. Did this come through yet? And I answered all 500 with the same response. No, not yet. <laughs> I 
I just never understood the whole arithmetic thing. Those story problems, that's where I was headed. They always start out kind of with the same theme or tone, don't they? There's a woman in New York City. She is boarding a train at 10.13 a.m. And I'm thinking, why? Why is she getting on that train? Why is she leaving New York City? Does she not know there is great shopping in New York City? Don't get on the train. There's going to be sale any minute at Macy's. She gets on the train at 10.13 a.m. Now, if she rides on the train for 89 hours going 98 miles an hour and she goes to Del Rio, Texas. And I'm thinking, oh, honey, you are not going to find a Nordstrom's in Del Rio, Texas. That is three miles from the border of Mexico. Do not get on the train. When she arrives in Del Rio, Texas, how many people are on the train? I have no clue. I can't do it. It just frustrates me. Now, because I'm single, I uh, can pretty much eat whatever I want to for dinner. I don't have to make a dinner for anyone. And, well, I love cereal. And so a lot of times at supper time, I'll just pour myself a bowl of cereal. But I always eat the kind of cereal that talks to me, Rice Krispie Treats, because it makes me feel like I have company. <laughs> but sometimes I get kind of worried because I go shopping for cereal, and I don't even know how to tell which is the best deal, the smaller box or the slightly larger box for, you know, half a dollar more. I don't know how to compute that, and I can't call Dad because he's hard of hearing and trying to learn email anyway and wouldn't hear the phone ring. And so I just stand there and think, okay, this week I'll get the larger box, and then next week now I'll get the smaller box. I don't know if I'm wasting money or not. Well, a few weeks ago I finally figured out how to find the problem to that. I just decided to do all my grocery shopping at the dollar store. <laughs> That solves it all. Everything's a dollar. I don't have to worry about it. So I'm pushing my cart down the cereal aisle, and I find my brand. It's generic, but I find my cereal that talks to me. I get it and put it in the cart, and I take it home. Well, you get what you pay for, don't you? It talked to me all right, but it was all in Korean. I didn't understand a word that it said. Now, I've heard... That if, you, if you're on the top of the Empire State Building and you drop a penny, that it could crush a Volkswagen Beetle on the ground. Now, I don't know if that's true. Probably Mythbusters has probably done something on it. But I'm just naive enough to believe it. And so I've swallowed that. And I'm thinking, that is just amazing. Because I used to have a Volkswagen bug. Stay out of New York City. I'm not going near the Empire State Building. I may get crushed with a penny. I may get taken down with a penny. What a way to go. How did she die? A penny landed on her. Stay away from New York City. But I'm also thinking, oh, my Lanta. If that is really true. If we can crush a Volkswagen Beetle with a penny from the top of the Empire State Building, then we really need to think our entire war strategy, don't we? I'm thinking we could have started and ended this whole Iraq thing with about 73 cents. Yeah. Now, near where I live, there's a candy shop called Patsy's Candy. Oh, I love candy. And they had a big jar in the window filled with M&Ms. And then the sign said, count 
guess how many M&Ms are in the jar, and the closest one is going to win a $25 gift certificate to Patsy's Candy. I stood outside, looked longingly, salivating at the jar of colored M&Ms in the jar, and I thought, you know, this is pitiful. As an adult, I don't even know how to guesstimate that. I mean, I know there's a circumference. I know there's volume and depth. But what do you do with it? Do you add something and subtract or divide and multiply something else? And if so, what do you, you know, put together? When you start putting letters and numbers together, that's just sinful to me. It really is, isn't it? Man. And so I stood outside, D. I stood outside the window and looked longingly at that big jar of M&Ms thinking, pitiful, I can't even guesstimate. But I looked at the M&Ms and it made me think, you know, I remember seeing in a 7-Eleven store that now we have miniature M&Ms. Have you seen those? Little miniature m and I mean, they were pretty little in the first place, but these miniature mini M&Ms are about the size of a dot, right? And as I was staring longingly at the jar of M&Ms, I couldn't help but think, huh, wonder how we got many M&Ms. Was somebody perhaps eating a normal M&M, and she took the normal M&M and maybe took a bite out of it, and then looked at it, well, I am not going to be able to finish this. Gay, could you share this with me? I am not going to be able to finish many M&Ms. Yes. Maybe that's how it happened. I don't know. But I just never got that arithmetic thing together. So I love it when Scripture says in Romans 9.20 that arithmetic is not his focus. Thank you, God. Now I get to go to heaven because you're not concerned with arithmetic. When God looks at you, he doesn't see you as a label. He sees you as a child of the king, and he calls you by your name. Now back to the name Legion. It really indicates how serious this guy's condition was. And we see in the next few verses that the demons beg Jesus to go away. Don't send us to the bottomless pit. You see, the demons and Satan know the end of the story. They know that sometime Jesus will be the victor. He is the king of kings and the Lord of lords. Yes, right now, Satan has some temporary power, but God is always more powerful. And they know the end of the story like we do. And they know they're going to be on the losing team. So please, don't send us to the bottomless pit yet. Please, would you send us into those pigs instead? Okay, so this man, as he's talking to Jesus, actually the demons are speaking through him, his words and his actions are conflicting. Remember what did he do when he first saw Jesus? He ran to the beach. He ran to the shore before Jesus, according to verse 1, had even gotten out of the boat. And then in verse 6, while Jesus was still on the, on the, on the water, the man saw him and ran and fell down on the shoreline. So his actions are saying, I need you. You are my only hope. You are my only answer. My life has fallen apart. And if I'll ever really live, it's got to be through you and you alone. That's what his, his, his actions are saying. But his words are saying through the demons, go away. Leave me alone. I don't want to have anything to do with you. It, it, there's a big contradiction, isn't there? And maybe you've gone through just such a battle yourself. Your mind and your heart are in conflict against one another. 
Your actions are saying, I'm here. I'm at church. I'm at revival. I want more. I really do want to go deeper. I really do want more intimacy with my heavenly father. But maybe your words are saying, we need to hurry up and get home. We've got homework to do. We've got chores. We've got this. We've got that. And there's a conflict going on inside. The Holy Spirit is dealing with you, and he wants to end that battle. Maybe tonight we can just end that battle and say, Father, have your way. I want my actions and my words to mesh, and I want them both to say, I need you. I want you. I surrender all to you. Well, Legion, or Satan, had taken complete control of this man. But at the name of Jesus, everything would change. And that power is available to you tonight. Now again, the demons were afraid because they knew who Jesus was. And they knew that when you meet Jesus, something's going to change. In fact, Jesus himself said in Luke 12, 51... In the message, he says, I have come to stir things up. So chances are that he didn't bring you tonight just to feel good or to do a quiet little working in your mind. Chances are that he brought you here tonight to stir things up because he wants to rearrange some thinking, because he wants to rearrange your priorities, because he wants to be Lord of your life. Well, then the demons try to strike a deal with Jesus. And that's, again, where the pigs come into the picture. Jesus, there's a herd of pigs. Please send us into the herd of pigs. So Jesus does. You know, Satan's first choice is a human being. But when he can't have a human being or a human isn't available, he'll take an animal. Jesus sent the demons into this herd of pigs. And maybe you know the story. The pigs went squealing and ran down a slippery slope into the lake and every single one of the pigs drowned. You know what that teaches me? Jesus doesn't make deals with anyone. Let's look at verse 15. And a large crowd soon gathered where Jesus was. But as they saw the man sitting there fully clothed and perfectly sane, they were frightened. You see, no one had been able to help this guy before. Remember, in society's eyes, he's a freak, he's a loser, he's weird, he's an outcast, he's been ostracized. Just get him out of here. We don't care what happens to him. We don't want to deal with him. But now Jesus has healed him. He's whole. He's sane. He's well. He's been restored. He's been forgiven. And he's actually having a normal conversation with Jesus. Well, now, the next part of the story, Jesus got in the boat to leave. You see, he had first come to the shore in the boat. He got out, dealt with this man at the cemetery. Now he's getting in the boat and he's leaving. Do you know, did you catch what's not written there? The only reason that Jesus crossed an entire lake was to get to the man in the cemetery. Do you know that Jesus is willing to cross an entire lake for you? Do you know that he has moved heaven and earth? That, he is, that God has put himself in, in the form of a human being and sent him into your world to live and walk and live and work and sleep and eat and have conversations and die a horrific death on a cross just for you. Jesus is approachable. 
And he's always willing to cross an entire lake just for you. Jesus gets in the boat to leave and the man wants to go with him. But let's look at Jesus' response in verse 19. But Jesus said, no, go home to your friends, Jesus told him, and tell them what wonderful things God has done for you and how merciful he has been. Sometimes we think when God does a wonderful work in our life, first thing we need to do is hit the mission field. Maybe I need to be a missionary. You know what? You can be an amazing missionary right here without ever leaving your city, your state, or your country. Now, there will be times when God may call you overseas, and he certainly does call people overseas, but our first and greatest mission field is right here in our own home, with our own family first, and then with our other loved ones and our friends. And right here in our community, that's one of the things that impresses me so much about Salem Fields Community Church. The liaisons you make, the friendships, the bonds. That I remember the first time I was here, it was back in 2001. Bill and Gail reminded me of my visit here. Where are you, Bill and Gail? Uh, I just talked to you. There they are. You reminded me of this. 2001, wasn't it? Yes. And I remember, and you might remember this too, that Buddy and Gay had brought in the football team on that Sunday morning. And they just wanted to pray for them and celebrate them. Just, wanted you, just want you guys to know that we love you. We're here for you if you ever need us. Oh, I love that. I know that other times you've brought in other people, cheerleaders. You've brought in other people from the city. And, and Gay has mentioned through your announcements that you're, you're partnering with the sheriff's department for trunk or treat. This is our greatest mission field right here in our own community. So Jesus is saying, no, no, don't get in the boat and come with me. You go back home. Go to your friends and your family. Tell them the wonderful things that God has done for you. Maybe later I may send you somewhere else, maybe not. But right now, your greatest mission field is right there. Your home, your friends, and your family. In essence, Jesus was saying, get out of the graveyard. Let the others around you see the difference that I've made in your life. Jesus is saying the same thing to you and to me. You weren't made to live among the dead. Get out of the graveyard. But guess what? Some of us have become so comfortable that we haven't even realized that we're living in a cemetery and that we've surrounded ourselves with tombstones that boast carnality. Alcoholism, gambling, pornography, a critical spirit, gossip, tearing others down, gambling, fear, a low self-esteem, insecurity, intimidation, rebelliousness, drunkenness. Those are what the tombstones around us are boasting among the dead. And we've become so comfortable living in a cemetery that we haven't even realized, oh my goodness, I didn't even realize where I was. Look at what I've surrounded myself with. I've become comfortable living in the midst of tombstones that are bragging about alcohol and drugs and pornography and fear and insecurity and, 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 and yeah, I'm jealous and yeah, I feel anxious and yes, I feel and I feel and I struggle with and I get out of the graveyard. My friends... We 
have become accustomed to living in shackles. And we've been living in shackles for so long. We've learned to accessorize them. <laughs> Put a little glitter on my shackles. It'll match the color of my tombstone. I can make this work. Get out of the graveyard. So comfortable in our shackles. We've learned to accessorize them. What? You weren't meant to live in shackles. You were meant to live freely and in the power of the Holy Spirit. Let's listen to 2 Corinthians 6.11 in the message. The smallness you feel comes from within you. Your lives aren't small, but you're living them in a small way. How, Susie? How am I living my life in a small way? Well, that's really for you to answer, but could it be spiritual pride? Oh, I'm so glad that he's here and she's saying the things she's saying because he really needs to hear it. Oh, I'm glad he's here. <laughs> or could it be fear? You're living in fear. That's living in smallness. Could it be a low self-esteem? That's living your lives in a small way. Could it be flirting with someone who's married of the opposite sex? That's living your life in a small way. Could it be feeling that everybody else is wrong except those in my small circle? That's living your life in a small way. Oh, wait a minute. We have scripture for this. <laughs> it's found in Galatians 5, 19 through 21. But when you follow your own wrong inclinations, when you're surrounding yourselves with tombstones of carnality, your lives will produce these evil results, impure thoughts. Oh, oh my goodness, yeah, I'm struggling with that. That's living your life in a small way. Eagerness for lustful pleasure, living your life in a small way idolatry you know what that is we talked about it Sunday morning anything that you invest too much time or energy or thought or money in becomes an idol spiritism or encouraging the activity of demons well how would I do that well some of the games that we play whether on video or whether the old-fashioned games like Ouija board or sleepover games that we find ourselves, Dungeons and Dragons. I know that takes us back a couple of decades, but you know what? Recently, I met a lady. She was probably mid-30s, maybe early 40s, and she shared with me her story. She said, Susie, I was caught up in Dungeons and Dragons, and I thought, whoa, I didn't know anybody played that anymore, and I thought, really, it was just kind of for teens. She said, oh, I was really caught up in it, and it was a life role. I don't understand the whole the game or how it works but she said I had a life role and my role was to take down keepers of the word or something like that she said in other words that meant pastors and priests those in ministry and so she said I would visit I would try to infiltrate different churches in my city she lives in Nevada and she said I, my goal would be to tear that minister down I said, well, how would you do that? She said, well, I would listen. She said, for instance, one time I was out in the lobby and I was standing over here and a pastor and his wife were standing here speaking with another couple. And I listened carefully. I could overhear them and he was making sarcastic remarks about his wife. And my ears went up and I thought, aha, a red flag. 
That's my foothold. I can get in and I can cause trouble in that marriage. And she said, I did. There are marriages that she has torn apart. There have been ministers that she's taken out of ministry. I go, what else? I mean, this is all really foreign to me. She said, well, another time I was in a church, the pastor had come back from a trip to Africa. He was talking about the severe famine going on in this specific area. And he said, we must pray for these people. We must pray for these people. They're starving. They're dying of starvation. And I sat in my seat and I thought, oh, I'll pray for them. I'll pray all right. I'll pray that they die of starvation and they die of great pain as they're starving to death. Well, today, she's the prayer pastor at a Nazarene church in her city. Praise God. What God can do with a life if we're available and if we're willing for him to change us. A demon-possessed man who's living in a graveyard to a woman, an adult woman, who was encouraging the activity of demons. Let's continue with the scripture. Hatred and fighting, that's living your lives in a small way. Jealousy and anger, oh yeah, that's easy. Easy for me to get angry about that, yeah, and it's awful easy for me to get jealous over you because I wish I had, and how come you have it? How come you got promoted? I was really qualified for the position. Living our lives in a small way. And constant effort to get the best for yourself, me first, it's my rights, I'm entitled living your lives in a small way. The feeling that complaints and criticisms, oh, it's easy to complain, isn't it? How come we never do it this way? How come we always living your life in a small way? And the feeling that everyone else is wrong except those in your own little group and there will be wrong doctrine, envy, murder, drunkenness, wild parties, and all that sort of thing. Let me tell you again as I have before. The Apostle Paul says that anyone living that sort of life will not inherit the kingdom of God. God is saying, stop living your lives in small ways. Well, how does God want me to live my life? I can tell you, not with my own words, on God's words, straight from the Bible. I can tell you how God wants you to live. I can share with you right now what God's will for you is. And some of you have been wondering, what is God's will for me? What is God's will? Here it is, right here in Scripture, Galatians 5, verses 22 and 23. But when the Holy Spirit controls our lives, oh, he will produce this kind of fruit in us. Love, yes. Joy, I want that. Peace, I need that. Patience, not going to ask for that. No, I'm kidding. Patience, <laughs> kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. That's God's will for you. That's how God wants you to live. So get out of the graveyard. Stop settling for less because God dreams bigger for you. He dreams bigger for you than you would ever dare to dream for yourself. Now, as we move toward wrapping this up, I want to bring this all together with an illustration that you have probably heard since you were about five, maybe six years of age. See if you recognize this story. There was a boy named Jack. He had a mom, and the two of them just didn't have much money. They were down to their last few dollars. And so she finally gave the money to Jack, and she said, Jack, I want you to go to the market and sell our cow. That was the, the, the only material possession they had beside their small home. 
a few dollars left and take that to market, get some food, and on your way, sell the cow once you get to market. It reminds me of of 1 Kings 17, the story of the widow at Zarephath. The prophet comes to visit her and he says, may I have some water? Please, could you make me some bread? And she's been gathering sticks, and she has some water, and she has a little bit of flour. And she says to him, sir, I tell you the truth. It's just my son and me. And all I have is enough flour and a little bit of oil to make a small loaf of bread for the two of us. And I have already told him, son, we will eat this, and then we will die. The prophet said to her, ma'am, I'm a prophet of God. Your flour will never run out, and your oil will not run dry. Jack takes the cow to the market, and on the way to the market, he meets someone, and the man says, what are you doing with your cow? Jack says, well, I only have a few dollars left. I'm going to go buy a little bit of food. Then I'm going to sell the cow, and with that money, uh, we'll be able to live for maybe another month or two, and then, well, that's it. We have no more money. There's no more hope for my mom and me. The stranger said, Jack, I tell you what, instead of selling the cow for money, sell me the cow for these beans. Now think about it, Jack. You can plant beans and you'll always get more beans. Beans, beans, more beans. Think of all you can do with beans. Beans and cornbread, beans, beans and pudding, bean fudgesicles, bean witches. Think of all the things, bean pizzas. You can do so much with beans and you'll always have beans. You'll never run out of beans because you'll be planting the beans. They'll just keep on growing and they'll multiply. And yeah, that sounds good. So Jack's thinking, I'm going to think out of the box here. Take the cow. I'm taking the beans. And he goes home and of course mom is pretty disappointed. And Jack says, but mom, I think there's something special about these beans. I'll plant them tonight. You know what happens? The next morning he woke up and there was a giant bean stalk. It was piercing through the clouds. So out of curiosity, Jack climbs the beanstalk. He soars to the clouds and he stumbles out upon a grassy meadow that's within the clouds. <laughs> and he sees an elderly woman approaching him. He also sees a magnificent castle in the near distance, not too far. The elderly woman approaches and Jack strikes up a conversation. Ma'am, is that your home? Wow. And she says, oh, no, no, no. Uh, that's not my home, Jack, but I can tell you the story of that castle. And she began to speak, and she said, Jack, once a noble knight lived in that castle. Oh, Jack, he was loved by all, but one day an evil giant attacked the man, and he attacked his family in the castle, and he moved in the castle, and he took it over. And so the noble knight and his family have never been seen since. We guess maybe they were killed. We don't know what happened to them, but they've been gone for years. Now, the youngest son and the wife of the nobleman, the noble king, had been away visiting friends. And when they heard about what had happened to the family and that the castle had been taken over by the evil giant, they knew they had to stay away for safety. And so the giant moved into the castle, Jack, and he took over that entire castle. But Jack, I want to let you know, who the woman and the son are. Jack, the woman of that noble king, is your mother. And Jack, the child, is you. What? That's right, Jack. That castle belongs to you. Your dad was the king. Now, Jack, do you have the strength 
to go back and do what you need to do to take that castle back from the giant so that you and your mother can own what belongs to you? Again, Jack is shocked. All he's known all of his life is poverty. How many nights had he gone to bed with his stomach still empty and growling? How many nights had he gone to bed wondering, will we have anything to eat in the morning? He was shocked. You mean, all I've known is being poor and I could have had all of that? What could have been mine? Oh my goodness. Jack, Jack, focus. Do you have what it takes to get the castle back for you and your mom? Do you have the courage to fight the giant? And Jack said, I must have the strength to do what's right. 2 Timothy 1, 6 and 7 says, I want you to stir into flame the strength and boldness that is within you. For the spirit God gave us does not make us timid, but gives us power. Good. Now to defeat the giant, you must enter the castle and take the hen that lays the golden eggs and take the harp that speaks. I want you to remember you're not stealing everything because everything in the castle belongs to you and your family. Suddenly the woman was gone and Jack thought, she must be an angel. Jack approached the castle and he knocked on the door. And the evil giant's wife answered the door. My husband, the giant, hates children and he will eat you. Who hates you and wants only to destroy you? Who wants to rob you of everything that God wants to give you? Just then, Jack heard the loud thump, 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 thumping of the giant coming up the stairs. So Jack slipped inside the door and hid inside the closet. And then when the giant came through the doors, with his amazing grasp of the English language, he shouted, fee, fi, fo, fum. Seriously? Okay, that's not really even a language. You got a couple of consonants, a vowel phone in the middle. Fee, fi, fo, fum. I smell the blood of an Englishman. In other words, something's different. Something is so different in this castle that I can smell the difference. I can see the difference. I can feel the difference. I taste the difference. We've made this castle a home of darkness, and I see a trace of light has come through here. You see, Satan always knows when he's trespassing on God's property. Light and darkness just don't mix. And darkness cannot hide the light. Midnight darkness times a bazillion cannot hide even a minuscule trace of God's light. And the giant noticed. So the wife tries to calm him down. Sit down, I'll bring you your supper. So the giant sat down, sure enough, he ate his supper, and he calmed down and fell asleep. The golden hen, the hen came out and laid the, the golden egg right on the giant's feet. Jack, seeing that this was his opportunity, snuck out of the closet, grabbed the hen and the golden egg, and on his way out, he noticed a bag of golden coins. And he remembered what the angel had said, you're not stealing. Everything in this castle belongs to you.
So Jack had the hen, the golden egg, and he slipped the bag of golden coins in his pocket and he slid down the beanstalk and he showed his mother what he had. And he shared the story and his mother began to weep. She had never shared the truth with anyone. Oh, Jack. Mom, what, what do you mean? All, all that we could have been having, all that we could have been living, Mom, all that is ours. Oh, Jack, but this is good. This is wonderful, Jack. Now we have the hen that lays the golden eggs. And now we have this, this bag of gold coins. Okay, now we can live comfortably for the rest of our lives. Oh, Mom, no, there's so much more. Mom, it's a mansion. Mom, and there's so much in the mansion, and it's ours. It belongs to us tomorrow, Mom. I'm going back, and I will claim all that belongs to us. Oh, no, 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 no. Don't you go back, Jack. It's too dangerous. No, stay here. What we have is enough. We're comfortable now. How often do we settle for less? And how often do we, unfortunately, try to get others around us to settle for less? Do do you really need to go back to revival on a Tuesday night? I mean, you were there Monday night. You came Sunday too. Some of you were even there on Saturday. Do you really need to go back? Oh, but there's more to be had. Well, do you really need to, to participate in that small group? Do you really need to be in that Bible study? I mean, you're already involved in church. My goodness, how much more do you need? I want all that I can have. If there's more to have, I want it all. Don't settle for less when it comes to your heavenly father. Oh no, this is enough. I can be comfortable. Good, better, or best. I can settle with good. Yeah, I enjoy the praise and worship. Oh, what a great meal we had. Thank you, Claudia and her team. Oh, I enjoy the people and the arms around me and the greeting. And This is good enough. No. There's so much more to be had that God wants to give you. So Jack said, I'm going back tomorrow, Mom. And sure enough, the next morning, he couldn't wait to wake up. And as soon as he did, boom, he was right up that beanstalk again. The same story, he hid in the closet. He hears the giant thumping up the stairs. It's been 24 hours. The giant opens the door, and he gives him the same line. fee fi fo fum And Jack's going, oh, please. 24 hours, and you can't come up with a better line than the fee fi fo fum thing. I smell the blood of an Englishman. Something's still different. Something different is going on here. This isn't as it should be. It should be a house of darkness. I see the minuscule trace of light. There's something that's not right. The hen is gone. The golden egg is gone. The golden coins are gone. What's going on here? Again, the wife tries to calm him down. Sit down. I'll bring you your supper. He sits down. But he's not very calm. He eats his supper and the anger is still raging. And so she brings the harp out, the harp that speaks to soothe the giant's anger and his, his battled soul. Who does that remind you of? In the Old Testament, do you remember there was a king who often brought in a little shepherd boy to play the harp until it soothed his soul and calmed down his angry, tormented mind? It was King Saul. Remember, he brought in David to play that harp. Jack waited until the giant was finally asleep, and then Jack slipped out of the closet, and he silently 
picked up the harp and tucked it under his arm and he started to dash out toward the door. But the harp began speaking. It shouted, Master, awake, awake, I'm being stolen. But Jack quickly turned to the harp in his arms and he told him, no, I'm the son of the king who owned this castle. Harp, you belong to me. And when the harp learned the truth, it relaxed in the arms of its master. Remember to whom you belong. Satan will try very hard to make you believe you belong to me. You belong to Satan. You belong to the world. You belong to deceit. You belong to lies. You belong to an eating disorder. You belong to cutting. You belong to alcohol. You belong to the past. You'll never get out of it. You belong to low self-esteem. You belong to fear. You belong to, you fill in the blank. No, no, no. Maybe you once were those things, but when you come to Christ, again, you are a brand new creation. You are no longer a label. You are no longer the alcoholic. You are no longer the divorced one. You are a child of the king. Never let Satan tell you who you are because it's a lie. Remember whose you are. Well, now the giant woke up and he was furious and he gets up and he starts toward Jack and he's screaming, I'll kill you. I'll kill you. And finally, Jack turned to the giant. He'd had all that he could take and he began to speak to the giant in his own terms. Fee, fi, fo, fum, I've been washed in the blood of God's own son. <laughs> God is my heavenly father. I belong to the king. I'm in his tribe. I'm his people. He's my daddy. Someday he's coming back. And when he does, every knee is going to bow. Every tongue is going to confess. Everything he has belongs to me. Check the mailbox. Guess whose name's on it? The mansion on the hill, that's mine. This castle, it belongs to me. People, friends, you are children of the king. And everything he has, he shares with his children. Everything he has, power of the Holy Spirit, that's yours to take. Yes. The fruit of kindness, that's yours. Forgiveness, yes. Take it. Accept it. Seek it. Live it. Redemption, grab it. Eternal life, that belongs to you. Feasting with the Father, you better believe it. Victory over sin, yes, that's yours through the power of Jesus and his blood on the cross. Victory over nations, that too belongs to you. And strength to overcome any addiction, you better take that too. And authority over Satan, and the demon world, that belongs to you. Joy, live it. Wholeness, love it. Confidence, boldness, wallow in it. Peace, envelop it. Security, purpose, unpack it. Everything the Father has belongs to you. He is calling you to kingdom life. Knowing that, knowing that, why would we choose to stay in shackles in a graveyard, surrounding ourselves with tombstones that boast carnality and fear and low self-esteem and I'll never be good enough and everybody else had but me and I'll never get out of the graveyard.
and start living the kingdom life through the power of the Holy Spirit. Oh, oh, that sounds so good. I want that. How do I get it? Total surrender. I surrender all. Jesus, I'm giving you my shackles. I'm, I'm moving away from the tombstones. Jesus, I am getting out of the graveyard. I want the castle. <laughs> I want your peace and your kindness and your joy. I want your gentleness, your self control I want your power. Jesus, I want eternity with you. I want heaven. I want everything that you have because I'm your child. I don't have to beg for it. You freely give it to me. You bestow it to me, oh God. I want you to pour that out on me right here, right now, on September 30th, 2015, at Salem Fields Community Church. I want it now. I want all of you that I can get. So why, knowing all that, would anyone ever choose to live in a graveyard? This is a story that has a choose-your-own-ending so it's up to you. I'm going to choose the castle. Through the power of the Holy Spirit, I want to enter into kingdom life. I want to live through the power of the Holy Spirit. I want him controlling every area of my life. I want him to permeate me, to saturate me. I kneel and bow and yield and hit to, to complete authority to him, to his will. No more rights, no more position, no more title, no more status for me. No more path, that's over. God, I'm putty in your hands. You reshape me and you remold me however you want in your image. Now, I don't see anyone with handcuffs on tonight, but they may not be visible. Because again, many of us have become so comfortable living in our shackles that we haven't even realized that we've begun to accessorize them. We've just integrated them into our lifestyle. It's just a part of my wardrobe now. I, I didn't even realize that I was living with them. Will you stand, please, and will you bow your heads? Oh, dear God, how we need you, how we want you, how we yearn for you, Father God, that's what we want. Jesus, we want all that you have. We don't want a little bit of you. God, we want all of you. So, Father, why wouldn't we want to come forward? Why, why wouldn't we say, yes, 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 yes. I can't wait. Yes, me, me, me. Give it to me. That's what I want, Jesus, yes. Father, why would we even want to wait? Father, why aren't we just rushing forward to the altar right now? I don't know. But God, I know that's what I want. I want to live in it. I want to live of it. I want to live by it. I want that. I don't want shackles. My friends, it's time to get out of the graveyard. If that's what you want, then come now. We're going to sing our prayer, I surrender all. That's the key. If that's what you want, God has spoken to you. You want him to release you from the shackles? You want to get rid of fear and insecurity and doubt, low self-esteem, or anything that you're struggling with, an eating disorder, a cutting issue, pornography, gambling, money, lying, deceit, deceit cursing, whatever. You fill in the blank. God can do that tonight. 
jealousy, anger, these fights. I just keep getting into arguments. Hey, God can help you with that. I just keep getting envious. Why did he get that when I should have had it? Come on forward. God's your answer. You're living in a graveyard. And you've been living in shackles. But God wants to release you from the shackles tonight. Because kingdom life is yours for the asking. Let's sing and you come as we sing.